Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. Have a seat. Take out your Bibles. Turn to the Old Testament book of Exodus and settle in. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you may take one for free off the table back there. Please be our guest. Take it. Uh, if you need it, great. If you know somebody who needs it, give it to them. But please take a copy of God's Word. You're going to want a Bible. You're probably going to want at least 10 notebooks and several writing implements. <clears throat> we are opening a new series today through the book of Exodus. I'm excited to do it. Uh, how many people have read Exodus in your life? Right on, right on, a lot of people. How many people have read Exodus past the Israelites getting to Mount Sinai and paid attention to the basins and the instruments and the stands and the bowls and the gold and the silver and the bronze and the wood and the curtains and the weavings and and all of that? All right, all right. Doing better than me. No, I I have. I, I think sometimes we struggle to make sense of all of it. Uh, But we're going to journey through it together. We are opening the book of Exodus today. I want to tell you, because many of you are here through the book of Ecclesiastes, and 12 chapters took us most of 2021. Uh, This is 40 chapters. So there's no telling how long we're going to live in the book of Exodus. Here's the deal. I have nothing better to do than to preach God's word and study to do so, and you have nothing better to do than to gather and learn from it. So we as a church have nothing better to do than to open a book and be there for however long God has us there. We will, it could be 40 years. Thank you. I, um, I think that what we will do, I think, I say think because I'm always open to following the leading of the Lord as we work through the book of the Bible. I think that what we will do is probably take the book of Exodus in two portions. It's very likely that we'll take the book of Exodus from chapter 1 all the way up to the end of chapter 18 when the Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai. And then the second part will be the Israelites at Mount Sinai and beyond. That's where I'm at right now. Uh, It's a large book and there's a lot of ground to cover. Um, But it seems to be that chapter 18 and 19, I I disagree with most people. They say 19 and 20. I disagree with them. I think that the narrative shifts at 18 and 19. They arrive at the mountain, they arrive at Sinai, and there's a change in the people of Israel. You heard me use the word narrative. Narrative. That is what we are reading. This, this book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, is a historical narrative. It is not a story from the Bible. How many people grew up? Story of Moses. Story of Israel and Exodus, or <laughs> of Israel and Egypt. Story of people crossing the Red Sea on dry ground and story of Pharaoh's children. I'm not poking at any parents or Sunday school teachers who use the word story when dealing with children. We understand the word story. But what do we also understand about the word story? It may or may not be factual. It may or may not be a true story. So when we use the words historical narrative to describe the book of Exodus, we are talking about actual events that actually happened to real people in an actual time. Exodus, it is a narrative. Some background on it. The book of Exodus, the word itself, Exodus, show of hands, what does it mean? Just put your hand up. I know what Exodus means. Awesome. Some people know. Would a young person raise their hand, Liam Henry, what does Exodus mean? Exit. 
The book of Exodus means to exit. The book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, and the second of five books of the Bible, commonly called the Pentateuch, a Greek word. Two words, penta, five, tukos, meaning tool or book or vessel. When put together, Pentateuch means five books, five vessels, five tools. Also, for those who maybe are unaccustomed to world religions, also called the Torah from the Jewish faith. We share something with our Jewish friends. I want to call them friends. I cannot call them brothers. We share something with our Jewish friends. We share the first five books of the Bible. They read the same words that we read, leading them to the same hope that we have been led to, that they deny. And so now you have a basis of prayer for our Jewish friends who do not believe in Christ. They are reading the same words as us. They are not finding their way, their way to Jesus. These five books, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, hands down without dispute, authored by Moses. Everyone agrees. Nobody disagrees on Moses being the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Hands down, without dispute, Moses. Biblically, you have heard the terms and maybe wondered what they mean. You have heard the terms, the law of Moses, or the book of Moses, and you have thought, am I missing something somewhere? Is there a book that I should be reading that would help me understand when they start talking about Moses? Is there something? No. The law of Moses, the book of Moses is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses. We just had a scripture reading, uh, which we're going to talk about very briefly, but uh, the support throughout the Bible of Moses' writing, and these being his book in the Bible that God gave him and used him, the support is ratified throughout scripture, but the greatest support comes from Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 24. Our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 24, 27 and 44 First, on the Emmaus Road, he's talking with two men who haven't understood the events of his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, and all of that. And he says, do you still not understand? And he opens them to the law of Moses. Beginning with Moses, he explained himself through all of scriptures. So when Christ says that, he's referring to the Torah. He's a Jewish man. He's probably talking to Jewish men, and he's referring in that cultural setting to the Torah. He opens them up to the writings of Moses. Then he says it again in verse 44. What was written in the book of Moses? Like, what is the book of Moses? It is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Of world religions, it's interesting to note, Moses is a major and prominent figure, obviously in the Christian faith, but also in the Jewish faith because of the Torah, and also in the faith of Islam. Muslims place a high regard on Moses. Like, so this is interesting. Now we have the three most prominent religions in the world, maybe behind agnosticism. We have the three most prominent religions in the world all saying, this guy's a big deal. He is, he is certainly a big deal. How big of a deal is he? How about these interesting statistics? In the Bible, Moses is the third most used personal name behind only the Lord, that includes God, 
That includes the deeper Hebrew, Yahweh. That includes Jesus, the Lord God. When, when Lord or God are referenced, that's the primary name in all of the Bible because all of the Bible is about the Lord Jesus. Moses is the third most used personal name behind the Lord, and maybe this will be a surprise, David, as in King David, as in Son of David, as in House of David, whenever David is mentioned, Moses finds himself third behind the Lord and David. So, pretty important guy. His name, a couple interesting statistics. The name of Moses, his name, appears in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament figure. You will not find any other Old Testament figure in the New Testament more than Moses. That's in front of Father Abraham and David, our king. Moses is out ahead of them, but it's by far too. He is the most mentioned Old Testament prophet in all of Scripture. There is not another prophet throughout all of the Bible, who is talked about, referenced, speaks, forget it. He is out, it's more than 800 times. He is way out ahead of second place. So we're talking about a pretty main figure. When we talk about the book of Exodus, if I say Exodus to you, the first person you thought of was Moses. The second person you thought of was Pharaoh. We're going to talk about him later. Moses, a prominent figure in Christianity, a prominent figure in our faith, we're going to learn a lot about him as we work through the book of Exodus. When was it written? Right? And I've tried to teach you that this is important for us to understand. When we read a book of the Bible, we want to understand the best that we can. When was this written and to whom was it written to? Who was the original intended audience of the book of Exodus? Well, unlike epistles in the New Testament, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, to the church in Rome, to the church at Thessalonica, to the church at Philippi. Unlike that, this is not to a specific localized people group. This is to a broad people group. It's written around the middle 1400s. Biblical evidence supports this. You can look it up if you want to or just take a note. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, we are told that Solomon began to build the temple in the fourth year of his reign. Solomon begins building the temple, and this is figured to be sometime between 975 and 950 B.C., okay? Solomon begins building the temple between 975 and 950 B.C. The verse opens up, 1 Kings 6, 1 opens up and says, in the, 400, for, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, Solomon began building the temple. So we can date the writing to approximately the middle 1400s. That's when Moses BC. So we're like a long time ago, right? It's 2022 now, 1400 years before zero. We're talking 3,400 years ago. Wow. Maybe more, maybe more. Who knows? We don't have exact timelines. This is a good estimation, we believe, based on what we do know of Solomon and his accurate accounting of in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of Egypt. Some claim that it was written in 1290 in that area, circa, let's say circa 1290. These are the only two views that are held. It's either middle 1400s or it was very early 1200s. The early 1200s view is based on this and this alone, weak archaeological evidence. Archaeology is important. 
It's really important, and we're uncovering. If you're not in tune with what people are uncovering that is proving biblical narrative, oh my goodness, get in tune with it. So the archaeology helps us to support, to support this was true. The writings help us support this is more accurate. God has preserved his word. We learn through God's word. Better choosing probably around the 1400 time frame, middle 1400s BC for the writing of the book of Exodus. Maybe all of the Torah even at that point. Who is it written to? Well, this is interesting. Who is it written to? Probably unlikely that anybody in here actually feels that it's written to you. I would, if we took a poll, you probably would say, oh, it's written for me. I, I, I enjoy and learn from the book of Exodus. It's written for me to learn from. Yes. Who do we believe that Exodus is actually written to? Moses, in his day, at his time. This is what we have to force our minds to understand. Moses, in his day, at his time, is writing to his people and to every new generation of his people that would come. The book of Exodus is written to every new generation of Israel. Why? That they would remember what God had done for them. All throughout the scripture. All throughout the scripture. Remember, remember, remember. This is interesting. You may think, that's, that's good, Pastor. I agree with that. Written for them to remember. But God only has one people. And so now it becomes important for us to understand that Exodus has been written for us, his people, to remember. We learn in Romans chapter 9 that through faith in Jesus Christ, it is the children of promise who are the children of Abraham, the children of Israel. This is very interesting. We're reading, if we want to reconcile this thought, we're reading a, a parallel history when we read the book of Exodus. Yes, we are reading about historical, national, ethnic Israel in the 1400s time range BC. And we are also reading historical narrative account of our Christian heritage. We draw a line parallel to ethnic Israel, national, ancient, historical Israel, God's chosen people, among whom those with faith in Jesus Christ are also counted. So there's a reconciling there for us to understand. It's written to every new generation of the people of Israel. They are to remember. We are grafted in, the Bible uses language, grafted into the vine of ethnic Israel. We are Gentile believers from among the nations, grafted into Israel. We are the people of God. Therefore, Exodus is not for you. It is to you. This makes our reading of it much more interesting as we work through. Why was it written? Well, if it's written that every nation would rem every new generation would remember, there's a purpose behind it. The purpose behind it and the theme, if you're a note taker that you'll want to write down, the theme that we'll be looking for and watching for as we journey all throughout the book of Exodus. To forever remind God's people of how he delivered, redeemed, and dwelt with them. I'll give you a shorter one. Our theme as we journey through Exodus how God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. How God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. If you have God's word open in front of you, would you please look with me as I read Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. 
All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, as we approach your word in the study of a new passage of your word as a church. Father, I pray for wisdom, for understanding, for application. I pray, God, that we will see this historical narrative as written to us, as it is our history as your people. Father, may we glory in how you deliver. May we glory in how you redeem. And may we glory in how you dwell with us, your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I titled this week's sermon, it was difficult, you know that I like to do this from the text, but I just couldn't. I titled this week's sermon, God Builds a Nation. Any understanding of this, some would say the second book of Moses, Genesis being the first, Exodus being the second. Some would say that any understanding of Exodus has to be grounded, and I agree with them, in at least a cursory understanding of Genesis. We can't just open Genesis 1-1, we could. We're missing a lot of what has happened if we simply start at Exodus 1.1. So, I beg your indulgence as we go on a little bit of a, maybe this morning is a little more lecture than teaching preaching, but I pray that you are open and hearing God's word and that God's word is working in you as we consider the things that we are going to discuss. So, uh, the academic portion of the book of Exodus needs to take place now. So, why? Let's ask questions of the text. This is the number one greatest way to study God's word. Ask questions of the text. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. This is the question I asked too. Why did Jacob and his sons go to Egypt and why was Joseph there already? Why did Jacob and his sons go to Egypt and why was Joseph there already? I'm going to run you through a brief history of Jacob and Joseph coming to Egypt. Interestingly, Moses records Joseph as saying in Genesis 45 that by God's design, Joseph is in Egypt because his brothers, Genesis 37, hated him and were jealous of him. So they sold him. Anybody got a messed up family? I put my hand up because I got a messed up family. We all got messed up families. Why do we have a messed up family? Why do you pastor? You have a messed up family? Yeah, I'm a part of it. Messed up. Joseph's brothers hated him and were jealous of him and sold him. They sold him to Ishmaelites, Genesis 37 tells us. Genesis 39 tells us that the Ishmaelites then sold him in Egypt to an officer of Pharaoh's court named Potiphar. Potiphar, however you want to say it. Anybody in the room familiar with Joseph going to Egypt and being sold into Potiphar's home? Of course you are. During Joseph's time in Egypt, Genesis 39 tells us, he sold to Potiphar. Joseph is a good worker. The Bible tells us very clearly and very distinctly that everything that Joseph put his hands to, just like, man, I want that guy to come and do my garden because everything this guy touched was gold. So he's serving Potiphar and Potiphar's like, wow, I like this guy. So Potiphar puts him in charge of the whole house. And then his wife accuses him of sexual assault and he ends up in jail. Wrongly accused, he ends up in jail. What happens while he's in jail? He's such a good prisoner that they put him in charge of the jail. Like, man, you're, why don't you, you be in charge? They put him in charge of the prisoners. He's in charge of the prisoners. He interprets some dreams. Genesis 42 tells us that two years later, 
He's released when, through Joseph, very clear wording that Moses shows us in Genesis 42, Pharaoh says, it's been told to me that you can interpret dreams. And for more than once in the Bible, Joseph says, no, no man can do that. God will give the meaning. Joseph recognizing, I I can do nothing. I believe and serve the Lord God of heaven. He can give the meaning. And so through Joseph, God gives a favorable answer of Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh has these dreams, these cows, these stalks. What does all this mean? And and Joseph tells him. It means there's going to be good years, but there's going to be bad years that are coming as well. In light of the wisdom and the favor of God that he gave to Joseph regarding Pharaoh's dreams, Pharaoh takes this guy from the prison. The Bible says they shaved him, they cleaned him, they put new clothes on him, and Pharaoh's like, you're so smart. Only I am more significant than you in all of the land of Egypt. And takes this guy literally from the prison and puts him, Genesis is clear, only as regards the throne. So we can't say that Pharaoh took him and put him on the throne, but he certainly took him and put him right next to him. Only as regards the throne am I greater than you, Joseph. Puts him over the entire land. I would encourage you, if you've never read the narrative of Joseph's life, do so. It's fascinating. In light of his wisdom and the dreams and the interpretation, Pharaoh puts him in charge, makes Joseph the second highest ruler in the land, and Joseph begins preparing Egypt for a time of famine. The wording in Genesis literally, such as the world has not seen. It's going to be a severe famine. He begins making preparations, a famine that will coincidentally drive people who are not living in Egypt to Egypt, that through Joseph, they may be saved. Fascinating things to consider. So while Joseph is preparing the land of uh, of Egypt for a famine, back in the land of Canaan, we find this guy who's named in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, Jacob. We find Jacob, whom God called Israel, As we journey through Exodus, Israel, Jacob, synonymous names. Jacob is the man. His name becomes Israel. Israel becomes a nation. The title of our sermon today, God Builds a Nation. Back in the land of Canaan with Jacob, whom God called Israel, and his other sons, 11 of them. Let's keep track. There were 12. One's gone. Now there's 11. Sounds like a story from the New Testament a little bit. The famine gets so bad that guess who's got to go to Egypt now? Go to Egypt, my ten sons, and get food for us. So they go, and through a series of events that provides more sermon content for more years than I can even wrap my brain around, Joseph and his brothers are reunited. And it's tense. They don't know exactly what's going to go on here. When they finally realize who Joseph is, and you can read this, it starts around Genesis 45, and it trails through to Genesis 50. This is fascinating. Read it if you never have in this way. From Genesis 45, when he, when he reveals himself to his brothers, he never says to them, it's okay, guys, I forgive you. And through Genesis 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, and 50, this is, to, this is to Egypt, back to Canaan, back to Egypt with the whole family. These brothers are like, dude's got power and we're no ones. And then in Genesis 50, do not worry. You might be able to see it right on your page. If your page is open to Exodus 1 and Genesis, look it. His brothers also came and fell down before him, fulfilling the dreams he'd had way back in Genesis, I don't even remember, 30-something. Behold, we are your servants. You know what this is in, in, in Genesis 50, verse 18? This is his brothers recognizing, do with us as you wish. We have sinned against you. 
We understand, like, Jacob is dying and these guys are afraid Joseph is going to drop the hammer on us when dad is gone. Look at verse 19. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Beautiful, beautiful story. His brothers are reunited with him, and Exodus opens, telling us that Jacob and his sons go to Egypt, where Joseph already was, and this is how they come to be together in Egypt. Okay? So the stage is set. Did you catch what it said? Right in the middle of, is it verse 70? My, there it is, right there. Right in verse 5. 70 persons. So now we're left with the third question that I asked. I asked three questions of the text this week. How did the land become filled with them? Verse 7 says, They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Listen, I've been to family reunions on my wife's side. My family is very small. On my wife's side, they're not small. You can, you can put 100 people anywhere you want. But the land's not filled with them. Maybe you come from a large family. Everybody gets together, you're like, holy smokes, we got to rent the township hall. Yeah, that's right, but the land's not filled with you. What is going on here that the land is filled? How did the land become filled with them? This is not simple human reproduction. What is at work here that all of a sudden 70 persons, a generation later, are filling the entire land? The land was filled with them. The short answer is that God's covenant promise is at work. The long answer requires us to go backwards in order to move forward. So if you would turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Pastor, are we really doing this? You bet we are. You betcha. Genesis chapter 1. All the references are on the screen. You can write them down. If you miss anything, please follow up with me. I'm happy to provide them. The land was filled with them. Why? We've got to work backwards. Filled with them. How do we go backwards? What does going backwards look like from the land was filled to them to Genesis chapter 1? So follow me. The land was filled with them. Jacob's 12 sons. Jacob... Isaac, Abraham, this is probably where you wanted to start. You probably wanted to go to Abraham, but we're going to go back to Noah, to Adam, to watch God's promise, God's covenant among man at work. We have to go back to Adam and work ourselves forward from what happens with Adam and Eve to how the land becomes filled with them. Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 26. And God blessed them, Adam, Adam and Eve, first man, first woman. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Beautiful. And God saw that it all was good. Genesis 2, verse 16. Let's start in 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Just a gentle reminder, work is a good thing. Verse 16, and the Lord commanded the man saying, you may eat surely, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We've dwelt on this a lot over the last several weeks in Corinthians and with Easter. Sin 
comes to man through Adam, and so death comes to all because all have sinned. Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of them were both opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard, verse 8, the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord called, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me whom you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I, God speaking, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Pay very close attention. Pay extremely close attention to the words that are about to be said. And your offspring and her offspring. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We've talked a lot about Adam and Eve hiding after they sinned. They heard the sound of God and they hid. And why did they hide? The Sunday school answer is because they sinned and they knew they'd done wrong with God, but we do well to pay attention to what God says to them. In the day that you eat of that fruit, you will die. Adam and Eve hid because their expectation was, we are dead. And in reality, the spiritual truth is that they did die. In that moment, I have no idea what Adam and Eve must have thought we're going to die. I don't know what die is, but God said that's what's going to happen to us if we eat this fruit. They were afraid of a judgment coming on them, and they had every reason to expect that that judgment would be death. But in the very pronouncement of judgment, God says, they're expecting death. I will put enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. Write those down in your notes. Put a circle around them. Seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. In the very pronouncement that brings judgment to them when they are expecting death, there is the hope of life. Absolutely fascinating and beautiful for us. Moses certainly isn't seeing every detail beyond himself as he writes, but he is absolutely seeing every detail behind him. In Genesis 5 through 9, as you read the story, so then Adam and Eve bear a son, Cain. They bear another son, Abel. Cain rises up and kills Abel, seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. 
Cain kills Abel, and then what happens? Moses wants us to see that when we are picturing Cain and Abel as seed of the serpent and seed of the woman, seed of the serpent is real in Cain, but seed of the woman moves forward in Seth. Seth gives birth to a son. What is Adam? Seth. Enosh, I'm in Genesis 5, I'm working my way down, verse 12, Kenan, 15, Mahalalel, verse 18, Jared, verse 21, Enoch, verse 25, Methuselah, verse 28, Genesis 5, 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, look what he says, this is absolutely astounding, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, quote, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one. Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from our painful, from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500, he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He wants us to see the promise moving forward from Adam through Seth to Noah. It's interesting. We read the account of the flood, the historical narrative of the flood that happens across Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8 into verse 9 when they come to rest. Look at what he says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. This is why genealogies are important. I know this is stuff that you're like, oh my goodness, pastor, it's Sunday morning. I know. See the beauty of God's word in these names and these numbers. Lamech, after he had lived 182 years, fathered Noah, and he said, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed will come relief to us through this man. And he lived another 595 years. He watched Noah grow. He saw something in Noah. Lamech is looking at Noah and he's recognizing this one is something different than the others that are around us. He is righteous. He is following God. And so he has reason to believe there's enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. This may be the one, this Noah may be the one who crushes the head of the serpent, but he wasn't. And what happens? A global massive, catastrophic, cataclysmic, apocalyptic, whatever word you want to use, flood, kills everyone on the face of planet Earth except Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. First Peter says eight persons in all. They come out of the ark. Moses is wanting us to see the connection. They come out of the ark, and it's really interesting. As Adam worked the ground, and the ground was cursed because of him, and because he had a problem with the fruit, out of the ark comes Noah, kind of like a new Adam. Like, we've got a new chance to reboot humanity here, but what happened with Noah? Sin persevered on the ark too, didn't it? Because the ark is an imperfect representation of a perfect salvation. And all of a sudden, Noah plants a vineyard, and he starts working the ground, and do you know what happens? He gets drunk. And do you know what happens next? One of his sons, Ham, sees him naked. And instead of shunning and covering and protecting, he laughs about it. I don't know what this means. Mocks it, makes fun of it. Look at dad. And his brothers, the Bible says, Shem and Japheth walk backwards into the tent and cover their father up so as to not see. You read through Leviticus, which I just recently did. Seeing the nakedness of anyone is sin before God. 
And so we understand this. Even though the law would come so much later, we understand that Ham did wrong in his actions. Ham and Shem and Japheth cover up, and we see, it's interesting, Ham's son born to him, which you can read, oh, is it Genesis, late in chapter 9, chapter 10, the sons of Ham, he has this son named Canaan, and all of the enemies of God throughout all of Old Testament history come from Ham. This is probably why Jews and Muslims don't eat Ham. It's a joke, a really bad one. <clears throat> All these sons come from him, and Noah, when he finds out what has happened, skips Ham. Interesting. Cursed be Canaan. He skips right over him. Cursed be Canaan. The seed is to continue on, though. The seed of the woman is to persevere, and we see that in Genesis chapter 10 as moving into the line of Shem, whom Noah blesses. We see the lineage of Shem, as Moses wants us to see, the covenant promise of God moving forward now to Abraham. The first 11 chapters are setting up the history of the world. And it's not the history starts at Abraham, but we start paying very particular attention to what is happening at the time of Abraham. He wants us to see the promise moving forward to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, look at it with me. Verse 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred. Side note, if you're a note taker, Joshua chapter 24, early in the chapter, just write down Joshua 24, Abram out of his homeland. Joshua records for us, God says, I took him from worshiping gods across the river and I brought him. So when God tells him to go, Abram is somewhere worshiping false gods. God says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make you, this is a new promise. We already have promise of a seed. The seed of the woman is going to destroy the seed of the serpent. Now, verse 2, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. God says, go. So Abraham, Abram goes. His name is Abram, not yet Abraham. We see uh, later in chapter 12, just a few verses down, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring. At this point, offspring that Abram did not have. He is childless. To your offspring, I will give this land. God visits him again, Exodus, or Genesis 15. Turn the page over. After these things, verse 1, chapter 15, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Promise of the seed, seed of the woman moving forward. Now to, now from Abram. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be in this most famous of, famous of verses. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. There is faith. 
There's the faith of Abraham, believing God for what God says, counted to him as righteousness. Moves forward, Genesis 17. God visits Abraham a lot because Abraham and Sarai, they're like not having kids. What are we going to do? God comes again, verse seven, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. Started back in Genesis 3.15, that promise of the seed of the woman. It's moving forward now, we see. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring forever throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring. The seed moves forward. Abraham's wife, Sarah, though, her actions, less than godly but driven by the fall. Women, we understand what it means when it says in Genesis chapter 3, your desire shall be for your husband. God is wrapping up in the fall of man that the design that he had is going to be altered because of the fall, and your desire shall be for your husband. You will want to exercise authority over him, but that's not my design for you, woman of God. It is a different design. And so what happens with Abraham and Sarai, they don't have any kids, so Sarah, her name becomes Sarah, exercises her authority over her husband. Hey, Abraham, getting old, ain't getting younger, want a kid. Here is my maidservant, Hagar. Get me a man-child. And Ishmael is born. The very Ishmael who fathered the Ishmaelites, who coincidentally Joseph's brothers sold him to, and then he sold him into Egypt. Fascinating how it's all woven together. Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. I want you to remember this. Mockery is a sign of the seed of the serpent. You should probably write that down. Mockery is a sign of the seed of the serpent. And so Ham mocks Noah. And so then Ishmael mocks. The story tells us, the narrative goes along, and in Genesis, Isaac is born, and when he's weaned, they think three, four, maybe even five years old in their culture a long time ago, it says that Ishmael stood mocking the seed of the serpent, mocking the seed of the woman as the story moves forward. Interesting that God said to Abram, though, I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you I will curse and Ishmael then is turned out, cast out. The Bible says, cast out to live, Genesis 16, 12, to be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, dwelling over and against all his kid, kinsmen. Abraham prays in this season as you're finding your way to Genesis 26. Abraham prays to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God says, no, it shall be Isaac. Isaac is a relatively small piece of the narrative. We understand that Isaac was probably aware of the promise that was made to God. We know that Isaac was an older lad when Abraham tied him up and put him on an altar and brought fire and raised a knife to slay his son because God told him to. But then God provides a ram in the thicket, that substitution, 
That substitution comes in and Isaac is spared. He has two sons, Esau the older, Jacob the younger. God says the older will serve the younger. All of this happens before in Genesis 26, verses 3 through 5, the word of the Lord comes to him. Let's start in verse 2. The Lord appeared to him and said, oh, pay attention. Do not go down to Egypt. Do not. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, here's the continuation of God's promise, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Come to Isaac. It is by God's design that the promise comes to Isaac. Abraham pleads that it would be Ishmael, but no, it's Isaac. Isaac has two sons. They are a mess. But the promise, the seed of the woman, God's covenant promise moves forward, and we finally come to one of our title characters. In Exodus chapter 1, we come to the man, Jacob. Turn with me to Genesis 35. Jacob is a mess of a man, a lot like me and a lot like you. But Jacob is an utter disaster. Like, I'm a wreck, but I look at Jacob and I'm like, man, I'm not, I'm not as bad as this guy. What in the world? He's a mess of a man. Jacob means, literally, his name Jacob means deceiver. He falls in love with a woman named Rachel. Follow this. I just made cliff notes. Follow this story. It's disgusting. So good luck, parents, talking later. He falls in love with a woman named Rachel, but the deceiver is deceived by his father-in-law, a man named Laban. Laban sneaks Rachel's older sister, Leah, into Jacob's bed on the night of Jacob's wedding to Rachel. Sorry, parents. Bible talks about it. Probably should be having conversations with your kids. He loves Rachel, but all of a sudden, here's Leah, and Jacob now has two wives. Strike one. This is against God's design, but God moves the story forward with Jacob, even though it's outside of what God would prefer, right? Let's deal with it. It's not ideal, but this is what man does when man starts to get involved in God's plan. Laban deceives Jacob, sends Leah the older in because it's not preferred that I would give you Rachel first, but Leah's older, you should have Leah first, and then I'll give you Rachel, and you can have two wives. Of note, Laban is a godless man. And Laban acts godlessly. Jacob loves Rachel, but Rachel couldn't have any children. Meanwhile, Leah has four. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Good story. Rachel's now jealous. I want kids. So she takes her maidservant, Bilhah, or Zilpah, one of the two for certain, Bilhah. Rachel takes her maidservant and is like, hey, Jacob, I want a man-child. Here's my servant, Bilhah. Get me a man-child. And Bilhah gives, verse, gives, gives birth, a third wife if we're keeping track, to Dan and Naphtali. Not to be outdone, Leah goes and gets her maidservant, Zilpah. And she's like, hey, Jacob, since Rachel did that and I've already got four, why don't you take this and now a fourth wife? And Zilpah now gives birth to Gad and Asher. Then Leah has two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. Now we're, if you're keeping track, up to ten sons. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 30-something or other. I wrote three, and that's not right. Then God remembered Rachel. Hmm. 
She was barren. And God remembered her. Did he forget her? The Bible says that God remembered. Does that mean he forgot? No. No, he knew. Came and visited her, opened her womb. Jacob literally says to her, am I God that I can open your womb? God is in charge of life. God visits his servant Rachel, opens her womb. She gives birth to two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Despite all of this, look what happens in Genesis 39, verses 9 through 13. God appeared to Jacob again when he had come from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Look at this refrain. Be fruitful and multiply. Fascinating to me that in the world, fruitful multiplication is looked down on so harshly. Interesting. Do you know why fruitful multiplication is looked down on in the world? Because we have fallen from God's plan. We have fallen from God's plan. The refrain throughout all of Genesis is be fruitful and multiply. God says to his people, be fruitful and multiply. But because of the fall and because of our fallenness, we have moved away from God's plan. And God said, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation, look at the refrain, here we go again. Third generation hearing these words. A nation and a company of nations nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken. Jacob sets up a pillar and worships him. Despite all of Jacob's awfulness, he's, he's awful. God uses him. God comes to him gives the promise of the seed to him. And now in Exodus chapter 1, Jacob, with his 12 sons, reunited, 11 with the other one, moved to Egypt, and the land was filled with them. Big deal, pastor. So what? What does this mean for me right now, right here? As we begin this journey through Exodus, as you've talked for a long time, what does it all have to mean with me? God made a covenant. He made it with one man who was a sinner. Adam sinned. He carried that covenant forward to another man who was a sinner. Who carried it forward to another man. Abraham's life is far from perfect. Who was a sinner. He carries it forward from Abraham to Isaac. Isaac is shady and not much is talked about him, but he's seen biblically in the narrative as extremely passive to things that are happening around him. But it moves forward to Jacob, who's a liar. It moves forward then into 12 sons who are wicked. It moves farther forward in one son named Judah, who has a line of sons. One of that line, his name would be David. Further down in that line, after all the kings fall, we would meet a man named Joseph, who would be betrothed to a woman named Mary who in the fullness of time brought forth a son, Jesus. God made a covenant. He kept it, and through it he built a nation. 
What does this mean for me? One, it means one of two things. One, God has made a covenant with you and he will not, not keep it. God has made a covenant with us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he will keep it. The covenant made by God that built a nation was built upon by God. We're going to see that even in Exodus. It's ratified in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant. I want to read for you Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. They've come now for us. Coming for Jeremiah, they've come now for us. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, always remembering how God delivers his people, always thinking about how God redeems his people. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God made a covenant and God built a nation and the covenant that God made extends now to us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He replaces, Ezekiel says, our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He becomes our God. He remembers our sin no more. And as we look back on what God did for Israel in Exodus, we are reminded he has done the same thing for us. How God delivers his people. How God redeems his people. And how God dwells with his people. Have you trusted Christ by faith today? As we continue with Exodus, does the thought of God dwelling with you, the thought of God redeeming you, the thought of God delivering you, is that on your heart? Is it in your mind? Is it something that you think about at all? This is what these things mean for us today, remembering as God's people. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the patience of these people. I pray, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will work your word into our hearts that we will remember you are a God who delivers us. You are a God who redeems us. You are a God who dwells with us. Father, you have struck a covenant with us through Jesus Christ. And we praise you, God, that you will not turn back your covenant through faith in Christ. Thank you. God be with us as we sing your praise as we go this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.